Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts that guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by sponsors like Johnsonville Foods, SwineWeb.com, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hoghearth, and SwineTech, the award-winning creator of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how you can reduce piglet crushing and your overall pre-winning mortalities by nearly 25%, visit SwineTechnologies.com. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, joining us is Rebecca Barton. How are you doing today, Rebecca? I'm great. Thanks. Uh, well, I'm a little quarantined, but otherwise I'm feeling good. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's crazy timing. So we're about to talk about PERS, repopulating, kind of managing uh, all those kind of situations. And uh, you are quarantining now for COVID. Yeah, uh, on Saturday, so just six days ago, my husband tested positive for coronavirus. So um, we're laying low at home. Both of us are are doing pretty well now, just a little little bit tired still. But uh, we're glad to be through that. Wasn't expected, but um, here we are. Was it was it a challenging experience with COVID or were you able to get through it okay? Is everybody okay? Uh, so we both came through it pretty well. He was more sick than I was, but mainly just body aches and a headache and just feeling really run down. Um, so we got through that pretty well, but we were pretty nervous because we were the first people at our farm that uh, have tested positive. And so now we're testing a bunch of people. No one else has been sick, thank goodness, but uh, we just kind of want to make sure we didn't spread it around. So it's just kind of a waiting game. <laughs> And you're calling from your farm in Michigan. Yes. And so I guess, what's it been like prepping for the unknown around COVID, potentially a part of a part of your crew or whatever might, might turn positive there? It's been uh, kind of hard because, you know, we were able to stay open as an essential business the entire duration of the pandemic. Uh, which means that there was no real break to like reset and, you know, start masking up and, and implementing all those strategies. We just kind of were like, you know, one day the government's saying, okay, you don't need to wear masks. The next day they're like, everybody needs to mask up. And the regulations have just changed so much. So it's just been kind of a challenge to keep up with it. But for the most part, we've just been trying to keep our teams that work together um, kind of stay stationary either in place or in the the personnel that are working together um so kind of everyone at worst is working with three other people so there's a like a group of four that might have an issue but hopefully we can isolate any problems we have to that group and then kind of go from there um obviously like the way we've stressed it is we want to keep people safe because you're you know most of our uh staff are either friends and family, uh, pretty much everyone we've hired is through referral through people who already work for us. So we're like, okay, if you do a really good job outside of work, if we're washing our hands, masking up and doing what we should be at work, you know, you're protecting those, those people you work with that you've known for a long time. So we kind of have taken that approach, like keep the family safe. <laughs> yes. That, no, it's great to be looking at it as a family. And I'm excited to talk about 
um, beyond COVID with you. Your experiences over the last three to four years, uh, whether that be through blogging, dealing with a PERS outbreak while also trying to move to a new facility and, and managing all of that, it's, it's a real challenge. But before we dig into that, would you mind talking and telling us about how you got involved with the pork industry and what your operations look like today? Yeah, so uh, I'm third generation on my family's farm in Michigan. Uh, my grandpa started our farm here in 1958, and uh, he just was dreamt all his life he wanted to be a farmer. So um, my dad kind of transitioned onto the farm, and then when I uh, got done with school, I decided to come back. When I started college, I wasn't sure about it, so my degree is in uh, business management. But I decided to come back to the farm just because I wanted to be part of the family business and also feel like I was really like kind of growing um, something that was meaningful. Uh, so I came back and just kind of started working wherever I kind of fit in. And, and now 10 years later, I'm sitting where most of what I do is kind of looking at animal care and making sure we're doing a good job uh, in our day-to-day -day practices. Um, to kind of live up to our industry standards and and you know following all those uh, things that we are promising that we will for our consumers and also making sure the pigs are healthy because that's really 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 important and then I also do pretty much all of our um, financial planning and if we're doing any projects they do kind of the project management like if we're building a facility or making any big transitions like my, my hands in that pot for sure so um, that's kind of where I landed, but really it's, you know, we're small enough that I'm kind of doing whatever needs done on that day. Yeah, a lot of hats, a lot of hats. I guess, what, is, what does it mean to, to handle the animal care and husbandry on your operations? What does that look like? And uh, I guess, might tell us about what, what, is that, what does that day-to-day -day look like? So uh, typically for me, I would go and visit, uh, we have three farrowing sites. So I make sure to go out and spend about two hours per site every week, um, sometimes more depending what they need, but really just looking at the animals, making sure the, the piglets and the sows are being well cared for that, you know, things like ventilation, feeding protocols, um, vaccination programs, training people you know you, you say oh I trained it train people I checked the box um, but actually sometimes training is more of a organic process and takes more than just one two-hour session a year um, I, you know that's and also you kind of get a feel for what your people are thinking and uh, you know what's important to them when you're going around and spending that time in the facilities uh, I also go and do the same thing in our nurseries and spend a little bit of time in the finisher but i have a, a co-worker that i kind of split um she she works more in the finisher end but i do the farrowing in the nursery so um, we kind of work together to see if we have any health issues and kind of bring that back around full circle uh there's a there's a lot to that that i mean you can always spend more time <laughs> so it's yes. just portioning it out so what did your operations look like? We'll come back to this, but what did your operations look like before, uh, I guess you changed to your, your newer facilities? So uh, traditionally, historically, since the beginning of our farm, uh, we always have just stayed outside, uh, which is really a weird concept in 2020, but we, we always had our sows outside for gestation and in, 
2013, we moved our first 1,500 sows in, indoors for the first time. Um, when we did that, uh, it was a huge project for us, but we did go with a pen gestation in Michigan that was kind of in the pipe, like they were going to to kind of, uh, that was gonna be the, the letter of the law. So we built for that to start. And then uh, we had good success there. So we moved the next 1,500 sows inside in 2015 and then promptly broke with PERS for the first time in our company's history. Yeah, we're going to get to that. I, what, I'm still trying to fathom what it's like having, what, three to 6,000 sows outside gestation? Yeah, so we had three sites with approximately 1,500 sows each, so about 4,500 sows. Um, and it's, it's something that's probably hard for people <laughs> to imagine, but, uh, we had groups, we had groups in like three to four acre lots. So, uh, they would be grouped together for the entirety of their gestation and, uh, had huts for them outside, feeders outside, water outside. Um, they had lots of grass and green space to roam around in. So it looked really cool. Uh, unless it was raining hard, then it got quite muddy, but, um, yeah, the, the pigs, you know, it was, it was a neat thing to see. It's what I grew up with. So it's what I knew. Um, but when you bring other people on the farm, they were definitely not expecting it. Yeah. And no, I've had the opportunity to work with about six to 800 sows that were pen gestation outside. I couldn't imagine bringing that to a level 4,500 sows. Um, you think about what farms looked like back in the nineties where it was way more common or even the eighties and seventies. But those were what two, three hundred sows. Like so, to think forty five hundred, I, I just can't even picture what that might have looked like. Yeah, and like you said, they weren't all t at one site. But yeah, it was definitely a lot of moving parts. <laughs> um, each each site had about thirty five lots outside, uh, full of full of sows. So. <laughs> so, so what what of what were I guess the biggest advantages of that, and what were the disadvantages that encouraged you to move indoors? Uh, well, when we first were outside or when we had historically been outside, uh, it was, you know, land prices in our area were fairly inexpensive and building costs were comparatively higher. So we had always raised them outside and we were comfortable doing it. We'd done it for, you know, 50 years. Um, so it wasn't necessarily, we didn't want to change it really until we realized that uh, you know, the land price was increasing and the uh, feed costs were also rising. So we we kept doing studies every couple of years to figure out, okay, when is the time to make the move? And uh, 2012, the crop prices went really high. So we decided after that, okay, we're going to, we're going to go for it, jump in. So um, that's, that's when we did it and we, we built. Um, so that was the main driver behind the switch. So it was very planned. Like you guys knew exactly what your threshold of tolerance was and you, you went with it. Yep. Yeah. Once, once the numbers um, made sense, I mean, you know, hindsight's always 2020. You're like, Oh, if we did it in 2011, that would have been better. But um, yeah, once it, once we made the decision, we, we went for it and planned it out. We had actually done um, some research in our own barns because we knew it was something that was going to happen at some point. Uh, so we had tried, in a finisher, um, we converted some pens and a bunch of different ways to figure out what kind of feeding method we wanted to use and uh, kind of tried out some different things there to see what, 
uh, resonated with our people and with our animals. So what was that transformation like? What, um, what did that look like? Well, so, I mean, first, you know, obviously, like, we had to um, get the facility built, and that was a huge endeavor. We, we pretty much did that with our own people doing a lot of the construction work. We do hire a general contractor to, to kind of oversee us, but we provide a lot of the labor. And then uh, just, you know, at a certain point, you just open the door and move them inside. Uh, the styles adjust fairly well to that. Uh, that's That actually wasn't a big issue. Um, I think crate breaking is, is harder than bringing the, the animals inside. Um, they don't they don't mind that and we were we were surprised actually uh, our, our hogs structurally were more sound than most you'd see in the industry just because they had been outside for so long so we always had uh, genetically selected for good feet and legs um, and they actually had less problems on the slats than they did outside uh, I think just being outside they ran into more issues uh with injury um so that was a pleasant surprise that we were kind of expecting it to be the other way that they'd have more problems but but we never found that uh on the flip side when we did find a health issue it was actually more uh just because they're not exposed to as many environmental bugs when when the sows do get sick they seem to react more aggressive dramatically towards the sickness. So we noticed that they, they seem to not withstand quite as much stress that way. Gotcha. You know, that's interesting too, because you'd kind of imagine you'd picture when you're talking about 4,500 sows spread out openly, good places to run, nice grass. If it's raining, it's a little muddy, but you don't really often think of the, the downsides to what does it mean to have a, a sow outside. And uh, I can say loading sows out onto a onto a trailer out of gestation in the middle of January is not fun <laughs> and it can't be fun for them either. And no. And it's, I mean, that's, everyone likes to see the sows outside when it's 60 degrees, beautiful day, you know, lots of green grass, but no one really likes to think about it when it's um, 20 below and you have to plow, plow out so they can get to the water bowls and you know make sure all of that stuff works for them every single day um and then also get them out of their warm huts so they can go eat and drink i mean that's you know that's a reality of outside housing and if a sow ends up farrowing or going a little early like those piglets they're just gonna freeze yeah yeah that's <laughs> i i've done plenty of piglet catching out in the grass i can tell you that it's uh, a <laughs> that's it that that wakes you up for sure <laughs> So in this transformation to indoor modern facilities, you guys ran into PERS. You never had it. You moved inside. And what, two weeks later, PERS? Yeah, it was actually our um, outside site. Uh, we, we don't know this is how we got it, but um, someone had let a fair pig go in one of our one of our uh, outside lots. Oh. And, um, we found it and they had it tested, but the test was inconclusive. But we think that's where um, we broke. And we also had a boar stud there. Uh, and that, it was a, just a smaller site. And that's how we got it into our uh, main body of our herd. At least we think that's how we did. Um, so, that was a that was a big break. Uh, we'd never had it before, so we kind of recognized right away. We thought it looked suspicious. Got it tested. 
Um, and then it was, okay, how do we, how do we get back to normal? So we, we worked with our vet and spent the better part of four years trying to get the herd to stabilize and we just never could, could realize it. Um, as soon as we get one part figured out, we'd have a problem somewhere else that ended up almost seeming worse. And it, it came to a point that we had to either repopulate or go out. And you guys chose to repopulate. Yep. <laughs> yep. And uh, I guess can you talk about what, what that process looked like and maybe what your operations look like today after, after battling all of that? So when we just, we made the decision, um, that part was almost kind of easy because we'd gotten to the, the end of the rope. You know, there wasn't really any other way to go. Um, but once we made the decision, we had to choose the genetics and that was huge because we had always had our own boar stud and chosen boars to go in there and been kind of independent on genetics. And that wasn't going to be the way we were going to go now. Um, so we had to choose a genetics company and then figure out how to get 4,500 sows at the right ages in the next couple of months <laughs> and, and, you know, get ready to breed those because once you breed that first, you know, sow, it's 11 months until you're going to market a pig. So you, you're this whole time, you know, you're holding on to this old herd that's not productive and you don't want to get your new herd sick. Uh, and we had, we didn't breed for five weeks, had a two week cleaning period uh, at each farrowing farm. And then, uh, then we brought the new sows in, which were bred and a finisher. So uh, we had a separate workforce, a clean side and a dirty side for that whole, you know, 11, 12 months uh, while we bred and raised and, and gestated and, we made it, but it, that, that was the, the whole time you're just holding your breath, hoping that nothing goes wrong. But it sounds like it paid off. You were saying, I guess, before we even hopped on the call, that there are some pretty big benefits from the switch at, at the end of the day. You mind talking through some of them? Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, one of the biggest things that we got was just a pure upgrade in genetics, um, you know, which which we were expecting to see some of, but they really, the, we were really happy with what we got, um, on that, that note. Also the health status, um, when you don't have health for, <laughs> for so long, you forget how good it is to have healthy animals and, um, that that's worth its weight in gold and probably then some, uh, so with a switch, we've, uh, our sow herd right now is sitting at about 4,300 animals and we're producing about 10,000 more healthy pigs a year than we were prior to the, prior to the switch and way more than we did when we were in the height of purrs. That's awesome. No, congratulations to you on realizing that, that, that big advantage. And I, I can imagine that through all of this, you learned a lot about people too. Yeah, it was, I can't speak highly enough of the people that I work with, not only my family, but just every single person we had there when we made the decision to repopulate. Um, for the first time in our company's history, we decided that we couldn't afford to, uh, sorry, this makes me kind of emotional, but <laughs> we couldn't afford to give raises or bonuses or anything at the end of the year. 
So we called everybody in and had a big meeting and we said, look, we're going to do this repopulation. It's going to take every single person doing the best job that they can to get through it without having a, a break, you know, where we can recontaminate our new herd and we're not going to be able to pay you more to do it. And we were fully expecting to have somewhere around 20% of our workforce walk out and not a single person left. So uh, when we started the repopulation to when we finished, our employee, uh, our employees were all there and they went through it with us. You can hear it in your voice and you, you know, that speaks a lot to company culture and, and the kind of organization you must have been leading to because it, that's, a, that's awesome. It's such a heartwarming story to, to hear that. Yeah, I, I didn't expect to have that, you know, that our people had that much confidence in what we were doing and believed in it. And, and we're happy. I mean, the market's been crazy, but we're happy to reward them for that loyalty. So what do you think, and this is a great kind of way to lead into it, and we, I was kind of trying to wrap it around and, and talk about a welfare aspect and what are some of the things with welfare that are opportunistic, but within just being a leader for a team, what are some of the greatest attributes of a good leader and of a great team? So I think one of the things that we re really value in having a leader is you, you have to have some sense of where you fit in the whole cycle and, and, kind of see that bigger picture. Um, you know, if you're only doing something for a short-term gain or, you know, for your own personal, you know, benefit, you might be hurting the rest of the system and that ends up kind of hurting you. So you, you have to be able to see that it's more than just about your personal piece, but you're a bigger part of the whole and kind of working towards the, that whole, um, the potential for the whole. Yeah, I heard in a in a talk about last week that it's like a good leader, they were saying it's not like how many people work for you, but it's how many people do you work for? Like you're they're here for you to serve them, right? Exactly. Yeah, and and you have to you have to be willing to do kind of any job as as the team leader. I think that makes a big difference for your people. It's it's not necessarily that you're in there power washing every day. That's not, maybe not the best use of your skill. But if your people know that you're willing to to do that stuff on the hard days or take that, you know, when something goes wrong that you're going to be in there doing the hard work with them, I think that goes a long way. So then what's the what's I guess what's the characteristics of a great team? I think with a team, uh, you've got to have people that are willing to, to be flexible for each other. And while you're, you know, everyone has to want to pull their own weight, but then also, um, you know, kind of, kind of help fill in the cracks a little bit. Like you want to, you want to be working with people that, you know, if you miss something, they're going to be comfortable to say, Hey, like we missed this. We need to, to go in there and uh, and and maybe do it a little better, or do it a little bit differently, and kind of uh, you need to have a team culture where people aren't afraid to to speak up when they see something. Like like you value everybody's opinion. Um, you know, maybe maybe one person has to make the decision, but I think the team members need to feel like they're valued and they they're you know they're part of the team, not just there to work. 
Yeah. What do you think, I guess, when it comes to feeling valued and a part of the team, which creates a lot of benefits that you've alluded to, what, what do you think makes them feel valued? That's a good question. I think part of what makes people feel valued is if you take the time to get to know them a little bit. Uh, you know, obviously, like I said, someone has to make the decision, but if they feel like you, you value their time and their input and their effort, I think that goes a long way for people wanting, wanting to work with you. Um, having an open door where people feel like they can come talk to you if they have a problem. Again, even if you can't fix it, or even if it's something that you're not going to deal with, but feeling like that they have that respect where they, they can uh, address you and not, not be just, Oh, you're just another, another person in the door. You know, I'll deal with, I, I don't need to deal with this problem. Um, I think that goes a long way. So do you have any golden nuggets for the audience, something we kind of wrap up with. I think, I think what you've shared with us around your background, but what you went through, how the camaraderie of your team came together and you were able to come out of this in, in a good way, if not a great way, despite COVID, despite COVID. We'll, we'll go pre-Saturday. <laughs> it's just, it's so obvious that you guys run a culture within your organization, within your farm that, is conductive to valuing your employees and allowing them to feel heard and, and a part of something bigger than themselves. That is so awesome. What kind of golden nuggets can you share with the audience beyond that? I think one thing I've learned through the last five years is you can't take, you can't take some of the decisions or things that happen on the farm personally. And that, what I mean by that is when you have your um, your high highs, it's probably not all because of something you did. And when you are living your low lows, it's probably not all because of something you did. Um, it's not your own self-worth. It's, you know, we have to kind of step back a little bit and, and look at our decisions as, you know, we're doing the best we can, but we can't control everything. And then I think you also have to be willing, knowing that, to adapt a little bit. You know, we've had huge changes and maybe 10 or 15 years ago, we thought we would never do this or never do that. Um, but we've kind of opened up to, to being more flexible and, uh, and trying some different things. And some of those have really worked out, but if you're just afraid to try or not open to trying, I think you're holding yourself back. That's really good points. Thank, thank you so much. And I heard something in there that made me think of something I heard earlier this week, which was that uh, productivity isn't an accurate assessment of one's self-worth. And you said something really close to that. And it's like, whether or not you're always doing the right thing, should it define your self-worth? Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know when we, we decided to repopulate, there was a fair chance that we wouldn't make it through it. You know, if we had one little misstep or something didn't go perfectly, like our, our family farm wasn't going to be our family farm anymore. And we had to sit down and realize that didn't change who we were as people. And once you realize that it gives you power to make decisions that maybe you wouldn't make before because you were afraid. 
Thank you so much for sharing that and your entire story, Rebecca. It's just an, it's an amazing story and um, we really appreciate it. I think a lot of people are gaining a lot of value from this right now. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to, to share. Well, you have a great day and thank you very much for, for joining the Popular Pig Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. Therefore, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com and subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are available. Today's episode is brought to you by sponsors like SwineTech. Leverage the power of computer vision, voice recognition, and real-time behavioral monitoring to reduce mortalities and labor inefficiencies in the farrowing house. For more information, visit swinetechnologies.com.